Bay Hills Community Church is pleased to have you join us as we continue our series, Broken. In this series, we've been looking at Nehemiah and how he confronted the brokenness of a nation and of individuals. Lead Pastor David Fossil guides us through what we should do when problems come our way. Join us as Pastor Dave gives us some pointers on handling problems that crop up and shows us that there is hope and restoration for our brokenness. Go ahead and grab the study guide that's in your program. Turn your Bibles to Nehemiah chapter 5. Nehemiah 5, if you grab the Bible on the back table, that's page 345. Page 345 is where we're going to be this morning. We are continuing our series, Broken. We have this week and one more week. We are talking about surviving, overcoming, and thriving when we have areas that are broken and in disrepair in our life. And, um, you know, it doesn't matter what area that may be. It could be spiritual, it could be financial, it could be relational, it could be emotional. We've been learning these principles from the book of Nehemiah. What's broken in the book of Nehemiah is a wall. The walls are broken, and the gates have been burned down. And so what they're doing to rebuild that, the same principles can be transferred and used in our life. The reality, hopefully, you're willing to admit that there's something somewhere broken in your life. Frankly, that's the story of this book. It's the story of a God who cares for you and cares for me so much that he sent his son Jesus to restore what was broken in my life and in your life. And for some of us, it's bigger deal than other things and, and, and when it's it, it, relational or what have you. But we all need to be restored uh, spiritually. Um, now, here's what we've been learning so far, just some of the basic principles by way of review. Chapter 1, we focused on prayer. Now, I realize some of us aren't that good at that. You know, we pray for like a minute and we don't know what else to pray about and we're done. Or we don't like to pray in public. And that's a difficult, just a difficult thing to learn for some of us. I just want to encourage you to keep trying and keep practicing. It's an important component of your spiritual health is learning to talk to God. And so we talked, you know, when something's broken in your life, that's the first step you take. Second step, chapter two, was planning. You know, and we talked about timelines, and we talked about goals, and we talked about organization, and so on and so forth. And now, some people might think, and that doesn't sound quite as spiritual as chapter one, but planning is just as important as praying. And you've, you've got to learn how to do both as you're trying to repair, repair the walls that are broken in your life. Last week, we looked at perseverance. And there's going to come a point in time when you feel like giving up and throwing in the towel, and you got to, you got to just keep on going. And so again, if you haven't been here the last three weeks, you can go online and listen to any one of those of those studies. Today, we're going to talk chapter five about the obvious problems. Eventually, when you are trying to repair things that are broken in your life, you are going to find problems. There are going to be issues that you have in your life. Now, chapter 5, verse 1 is where we're going to be. So if you have a Bible you want to follow along, or there's things in your, um, in your, uh, uh, on the screen that you can follow along with. Verse 1, now the men, and I think these next three words are interesting, and their wives raised a great outcry against their Jewish brothers. Um, in that culture, if there was a problem, men normally in that culture were the ones that would go to city hall and they would do their thing and they would present the problem. But it's very interesting that they mentioned the wives, okay? You, you know how, how they say today, you know, if mama ain't happy, ain't nobody that's happy, right? That's just kind of how families work because moms have this unique role within a family unit. If things aren't going well with mom, the whole family's not going well. Well, mom's not happy in verse one. 
She's ticked up. She's ticked off. She's upset. She's ready to blow a gasket. Why is she so upset? Well, we read on in verse 2 and following. Here's what we see. Some were saying, we and our sons and daughters are numerous. In order for us to eat and stay alive, we must get grain. They don't even have food. Verse 3, others were saying, we're mortgaging. Now, we all understand what a mortgage is, except it's aggravated here. We're mortgaging our fields, our vineyards, and our homes just to get grain during the famine. Verse 4 aggravates the financial problem. Still others were saying, we have had to borrow money to pay the king's tax on our fields and our vineyards. Although we are the same flesh and blood as our countrymen, and although our sons are as good as their sons, yet we have have to subject our sons and daughters to slavery. What is going on here? Some of our daughters have already been enslaved, but we are powerless because our fields and our vineyards belong to others. Now, there are three problems going on in these first couple verses. The first problem is that they're starving. They're starving. They just don't, they don't have any food. They don't have money to go to the grocery store to get food. They're starving. Add to that that there's a famine. So as farmers, our fields aren't producing the crop that they would otherwise produce. The second thing is that they're broke. They've mortgaged their fields, their vineyards, their homes, and they're borrowing to pay for taxes. And the final problem is that they're being abused. There's this language in there that their kids are becoming slaves. What is happening here? Well, they came to a point in time where they had to choose between servitude and starvation. And here's what would happen. We don't have money to go to the grocery store. So what we're going to do is we're going to take out another loan. And the banker would say, you don't have any collateral. And they would say, we got one, one collateral we can give you. We'll put our children up as collateral. Our children. So at some point in time, the creditors are going, okay, pay up. And they're going, we, we, don't, we can't. And they go, okay. Give me the kids. So they would literally take the kids and they would sell them into slavery. It's not hard, too hard to figure out. We got a problem here. We got a major significant problem. Now the root of every single one of bullet points that you see on the screen is greed and a desire for financial gain at the expense of someone else. Now this is the point where there's always someone who misquotes the Bible. Well, of course, you know, because money is the, 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 the root of all evil. No, not necessarily. That's not what the Bible says. You know, money can't be good. Money is the root of all meals, right? There's good things to money. The Bible says that the love of money is the root of all evil. It's the many, when you put money ahead of, your, of people, when you put money ahead of your character, when you put money ahead of God, you're not careful. Money can deform you and it can distort you and it can change you. Have you ever found and bumped into someone, maybe you went to high school with them, and they hit it big financially? Maybe it was a business opportunity or stocks they invested in or, or maybe it was, you know, an inheritance or maybe it was the lottery. I don't, doesn't matter. But they got money and it changed them. I'm not saying change the car you drive because there's no, no problem with that. But they, it changed who they are as people and, and how they relate and respond to others. It, it, it's, it's a weird thing. And that, to some extent, is what is happening here. Now, one of the things that I find interesting is not just with the problem, but who caused it, the participants. Let me show you what I mean. Let's put the next slide up there. In chapter 4, what they were experiencing was external conflict. And you have, in the, in, in the first couple verses there, an explanation that the Arabs and the Amorites and people that were non-Jewish were causing issues and problems. Well, this is normal to some extent because they were at war and at odds with them. You expect to have external conflict. But chapter 5 is not about external conflict. It's about internal conflict. It's about people that you work right next to. It's about people that you live with. You call them the family. It's about people you go to church with. It's coming from the inside 
not the outside, which leads to the principle of, of this chapter to some extent, and then we'll get into some of the solutions. Here's the principle. If you're, if you're jotting down notes, here's what I want you to write down. Internal conflict creates the most damage, and it also hurts the most. Internal conflict creates the most damage. It also happens to hurt the most. Psalm 55 and Mark 3, those verses are in your study guide. Let me just read Psalm 55. It speaks to the second part of the principle. It's not my enemy that taunts taunts me. I could bear that. It's not my foes who arrogantly insult me. I could have hidden from them. We all have people, whether that you work with or neighbors on the street or, you know, people you went to high school with or classmates, people that you know, okay, it's just the way they are and they're going to, you know, I expect it from them. I can handle them. But the psalmist said, my problems, instead, it's you, my equal, my companion, and my close friend. There are times where you are hurt by someone you never expected. And because you didn't expect it and because you thought that they had your back, it surprised you so much when they stabbed you in the back. Sometimes they're family members. And some of you used to call them husband and wife. Maybe even still do. Some of you called them mom or dad or children. Some of you called them pastor or priest. Some of them you went to work with. People you thought were on your side. They were on your team. And they, they took advantage of you. And it hurts because it's so unexpected. It hurts you just legitimize that. That's it, normal. Okay, even the psalmist is saying that. It's hurtful. Now, Mark chapter 3 relates to the project that Nehemiah was dealing with and, and, and issues that are broken in our house. He says, a home divided against itself is doomed. Here's what he means. If you're on a sports team and, and the wide receivers are running, running one play and the running back has another play in his mind and the quarterback has another play on their mind, they're, they're divided, eventually that team is going to fail and lose games. If you're part of a business and a partnership and, and, and you're, one person's trying to sell this product and another person's trying to market another product and the, 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 there's this plan and then there's another business plan, they got all kinds of different ideas, eventually that business is probably going to fail. If you have a family and the husband was on one direction and the wife is on another direction and the kids are going in that direction, at the very least it's going to be dysfunctional and most likely it is also going to fail. If you have a church and the pastor's going this way and some of the staff are going that way and the, you know, and the people are going this way and then God's going that way and it's completely divided, eventually that church will fail. That's the principle of Mark chapter 3. That if you are not united, eventually it ain't going to work out. It's going to fall apart. Very simple, very basic. Now, let me just make a couple comments. Comment number one, sometimes the reason churches in America are so jacked up, have nothing to do with the government, have nothing to do with the education system, have nothing to do with drugs and alcohol, have nothing to do with Hollywood. It's no one else's fault why some of our churches are so jacked up. You know whose fault it is? It's our fault. More specifically, the person sitting next to you. Just, just look at the person sitting next to you. I just roll your eyes and say, you're the reason we're so jacked up. Go ahead and tell them real quick. It'll feel good. Get it off your chest. In service number two, we had some people wanted to get up and go talk to other people. You know, I don't want you to do that. 
It's the truth, right? You have sin in your life. I have sin in your life. We are not perfect. And sometimes we mess it up. It's no one else. It's our fault. You have to be very aware of it. Sometimes it's no one else's fault. It's our own fault. We got ourselves into this mess. And we need to acknowledge that, okay? We need to realize that. Now, let me just make another comment real quick. One of the things that have been helpful to me as I've been spending a lot of time, as have many of our leaders and staff members on this building project, is that um, what Nehemiah is going through overlaps, it intersects with what we're going through as a church. And there's a a little principle here with respect to conflict and what's going on and so on and so forth. As we, and here's here's what I want to say to you, before we go about building a church, we need to make sure that we act like a church. Before we go about building a church, we have to make sure that we act like a church. This is huge. It's the idea that we need to, we need to be like a church before we get a church building. Now, I'm not saying this because I think we're dysfunctional necessarily. I think we actually are fairly healthy. But let's not be naive enough to think that we don't have things we could improve upon. Don't think about the other person. You know, I was kind of half joking when I told you to turn the person next to you. Really, the person you need to worry about is the person sitting in your seat. You just worry about you. So just ask yourself a question real quick. How am I doing? How am I doing? Right. Um, could I be more loving uh, or not? Uh, am I being gossip? Am I gossiping? Am I encouraging? Am I praying? Am I going out of my way to encourage and, and comfort those? Just think, what am I doing? How can I bring more unity to my church home? Don't worry about others. You worry about you. Why? Why? Because if we get a new church building but are not united as a church, God doesn't win. Forget the church building. He's done incredible things without a building. That's not the issue. Okay? The issue is to glorify God. And in this process, we need to be united. Okay? Now... As you're trying to rebuild walls, as you're trying to fix things in your, in, your, in, your, uh, in your life, what do I do when I have a problem? Three principles. We're going to go through these uh, rather quickly, and, and then we'll wrap up. Number one is prioritize people, not just projects. Prioritize people, not just projects. Verse 6, Nehemiah says, When I heard the outcry of the charges, I was very angry. Now, this is the perfect example of getting angry the right way at the right time over the right issue. The Bible doesn't say that getting angry is automatically sinful. As long as you get angry the right way, at the right time, over the right issue. Okay? That's what Nehemiah is doing here. Now, why is he so ticked off? Why is he so angry? Is it because the the contractors are behind schedule? No. Is it because the project is over budget? No. Is it because the inspectors came and they stopped the project because there's some environmental issue with the, with the soil or there's a, there's a slug that's on the endangered list and we can't do it anymore? No, it has nothing to do with that. Why is he so ticked off? Simply because people are being hurt. People are being hurt in the process. One of the things that you have to realize is as you try and rebuild your life, things that are broken, you're going to have problems. And they're going to come in one of two categories. People problems or project problems problems. People problems or project problems. Now, obviously, sometimes they overlap, but those are the two big categories. And when you have a problem, here's what you have to figure out. You have to have the discernment and the wisdom. Do I just kind of ignore the problem and keep pushing through? Or 
Do I have to kind of put things on hold, take a deep breath, and deal with it before I move forward? Do I deal with it? Do I not deal with it? It's very simple. All problems are not the same. They are not all the same. And you can't just come up with a formula. They're not all the same. Someone sent me an email about problems and and how they're not the same. Let me just read it to you. It says, a Chinese man and a Jewish man were sitting next to each other eating lunch. When suddenly, without warning, the Jewish man got up, walked over to the Chinese man, and punched him in the mouth, sending him sprawling. Chinese man picked himself up and said, what in the world was that for? The Jewish man said, for Pearl Harbor. Pearl Harbor, said the Chinese guy. It was the Japanese that bombed Pearl Harbor, not the Chinese. Jewish guy answered, Chinese, Japanese, Taiwanese, they're all the same to me. With that, they both sat down again. Before long, the Chinese guy stood up, walked over to the Jewish guy, gave him a karate chop across the chest. Jewish man yelled out, why did you do that? Chinese man responded, the Titanic. The Titanic? What did I have to do with the Titanic? Whereupon the Chinese man replied, Goldberg, Feinberg, Iceberg. They're all the same to me. (laughs) No, they're not. All your problems are not the same. Here's what you've got to figure out. Do I ignore my problem and push forward? Or do I pause and deal with the problem? I can't come up with a magic formula for you. You do know this thing called wisdom that the Bible talks about that God will give you if you ask for it. Ask for wisdom. What do I do? Now, in this case, Nehemiah decides, I have to deal with this issue. I have to deal with this problem. Now, in the midst of this, one of the things I find interesting is how balanced Nehemiah is as an individual. Let me show you just a couple areas he's balanced in. He is balanced when it comes to being task and people focused. He's not very focused when it comes to spelling focused, but he's focused on everything else. He's task and he's focused, okay? Some of us, you know, you are more task focused. What does that mean? You get things done, okay? But if you're not careful as someone who is task focused, you tend to run over people. Others of you are people-focused. You're very gentle, you're very kind, you're very encouraging. You know, you're good with people. But if you're not careful, you don't get anything done. One of the things that's fascinating about Nehemiah is he's got this great balance between focusing on the project and the task and getting the wall done, but also taking care of and, and, and being, being aware of people. You have to learn how to do that. You will always be more one than the other, but you have to learn how to be balanced and do the both. He's also balances being analytical and emotional. What is analytical? That's Nehemiah chapter 2 and chapter 3. That's him looking over the blueprints. That's him going over with the calculator how much lumber he's going to have to buy and what it's going to cost. That's him building teams and and organizing who's going to do this and who's going to build that. It's analytical understanding of what you have to do. It's very important. But also God has created you with emotions. Being emotional. Chapter 1, Nehemiah literally cries and mourns for the city of Jerusalem. He cries. In chapter 5, he gets angry. You need to learn how to balance being analytical and being emotional. That's making decisions with your head and making decisions with your heart. You can't just say one or the other. Sometimes you have to use both or, or have the wisdom to know which one is, works best. And the last one, he balances ministry goals and ministry strategy. What's his goal? To build a wall? What's his strategy? Well, we got this team doing that, that team with the builders and the painters and that. Well, sometimes you've got to adjust the strategy in order to accomplish the goal, which is what he's doing in chapter 5. 
learn to be balanced. Balance these different things, okay? Prioritize people, not just the project. Principle number two, write this down. Have the courage to address the problem. Have the courage to deal with the problem. When I heard their outcry and these charges, I was very angry. I pondered them in my mind, and they accused the nobles and officials. And here, and what I think is the key phrase, I told them, you are exacting ursery from your own countrymen, so I called together a large meeting to deal with them. Most of us have the tendency, when there's a problem, to just let things slide. Instead of going and actually talking to the people who caused the problem, you know, we post it on Facebook, or we talk to our friends, or we don't do anything about it and just complain and whine about it. At some point in time, when you are trying to rebuild things in your life, do you have the courage to try and address the problem? Now, for some of us, the courage is, do you have the courage to admit the truth of your life? The courage to say, if I don't do something about my marriage now, in six months to a year, it'll be on life support. And by that time, it's too late to talk to Pastor Dave. It's too late to go to a counselor. It's over. Do you have the courage to admit that? Do you have the courage to admit that some of the things you're doing to your body or with your body are not good, helpful, or honoring to God? I'm, you know what? I'm drinking way too much. It's out of control. I, I'm, I'm putting chemicals in my body, both legal and illegal at times, and I'm way far too dependent, even if you call them legal drugs. Do you have the courage to admit that? Do you have the courage to admit that what you're doing financially is not honoring to God and is crippling your family? See, sometimes the courage just comes in you admitting what's going on in your own life. I can't figure that out for you. Sometimes you have to figure that out for you. And sometimes it's the courage to have one of these kind of tough conversations like Nehemiah has. You, you know about these conversations, right? They are very difficult to have. Um, some of you may think that because of my personality, it's easy for me to have these conversations. It isn't. It never is. Um, I don't think it ever should be. In the 18 years I've been pastor here, I maybe have to have you know, six or seven of these. They are not fun. Um, and every single time, every single time, what happens when I have to have one of these conversations? I don't sleep well. Never do. I'll wake up at four in the morning and Sandy will go, what? Well, why are you up at four? And I'll always say the same thing. I've got to have a talk with someone. It is difficult you know, by the way, if, if you don't find having confrontation difficult, if you like having these kind of conversations, please get counseling. Okay. It is not normal. And you would do us all a great blessing. It's not normal to enjoy doing this, right? But do you have the courage to do it? Do you have the courage to say, I have to do something about it. Now, before you have this conversation suggestion, do what Nehemiah did. When I heard the outcry of these charges, I was very angry. And I pondered them in my mind. The Hebrew there literally means, I wrote it down, my heart consulted within me. Do you ever, do you ever find yourself, just before you're going to talk to someone, kind of talking to yourself? They're going to say this, and then I'm going to say that, and then if they do this, then I'm going to say this. And you're kind, of, you're kind of like rehearsing it in the car or when you're in the shower. That's kind of what he's doing. He's thinking it through, and he's processing, and the, what am I going to say, and how am I going to say it? You don't, don't just barge into the office and have that kind of conversation. Take the time to think it through. Now, the other little suggestion, it's in here, but let me put it by way of a slide. It'll make sense. Let's put it up there. He starts with a private conversation. He starts by talking just to the nobles. 
Okay, And then, when that doesn't work, he has a public confrontation he calls a large meeting. Don't just start with the large meeting. Don't start with the group. It may hurt just one-on-one with someone, one-on-one with someone, and it may work. Now, if it doesn't work, by the way, this is also mentioned in the New Testament in terms of the process. Now, what does Nehemiah say to him? I don't have these verses on the screen. You could follow in your Bible, verse 8, or just listen. It says, I said, as far as it is possible... We have bought back our Jewish brothers who were sold to the Gentiles. But now you're selling your brothers, only for them to be sold back to us. They kept quiet because they could not, uh, and they could find nothing to say. It's almost like Nehemiah is saying, you know, he's not getting all crazy. His, His vein isn't sticking out in his neck. He's not raising his voice. He's just calmly saying, can we talk about this? We got a problem. Does this make sense? You're selling your brothers and sisters into slavery. And they're like, "Uh uh-oh, it really doesn't. So they're quiet. Verse 9, so I continued, what you're doing is not right. Shouldn't you walk in the fear of our God to avoid the reproach of our Gentile enemies? You see, sometimes the way that some of you speak to your parents, it's not just that it affects your relationship with them, it's that people outside of the faith are looking and going, if that's what being a Christian is all about, I don't want that. Some of us, the way we treat our bodies, some of us, the, the things we say, some of us, the way we, we let our anger go crazy, whatever it may be. It's not just about me, it's about how it reflects on God. And that's what Nehemiah is saying to them. It's not just about you. It's about what people think of the God that you claim to worship. What the Gentiles are thinking. Verse 10, and I and my brothers and my men are also lending the people money and grain, but let the exacting of ursary start. What is that? I've explained that. That's basically exorbitant interest rate. So if you're going to buy a house right now, what, 4.5%, that's what your mortgage is. If you have a credit card, I pay mine off every month, so I don't know what it is, but some of them, they're like, what, 10% or 15% or higher than that. Ursary is if, we, if someone loans you money and charges you 38%. 38%? Yep, that's what you get. You see, these guys, they had them right where they wanted them. They knew they were desperate. So I'll lend you some cash. interest rate. That's ursary. That's wrong. And Nehemiah says that has to stop. Verse 11, give back to them immediately their fields, their vineyards, their olive groves, the houses, and also the ursary you are charging them, the hundredth part of of the money grain, the new wine, and the oil. We will give it back, they said, and we will not demand anything more from them. We will do as you say. Now, the reality is verse 12 doesn't always happen. If you do everything right and, you, and God wants you to do this and you have this tough conversation, hopefully verse 12 happens, but sometimes they could just say, get lost. You know, I don't want anything to do with you. So that's just being real. Verse 12 doesn't always happen. I think what's interesting in the last part of verse 12 and verse 13, then I summoned the priests, so he calls the pastors, and made the nobles and officials take an oath to do what they had promised. And then in verse 13, he has a big thing about involving God. Why? Why can't we just call the bankers in because it's a financial thing? Let's just deal with the bankers, get the calculator out. Why bring in the pastor, the priest, the bishops, and get God involved? Because when you have conflict, it's one of three or four things. It's either different personalities, it's miscommunication, it's different opinions and values, or it's sin. And if it's sin, you get God involved in the picture. You realize and you acknowledge that Satan is trying to mess you up. The minute you came to Christ, he's trying to mess you up and tear you down and keep you from living for Christ. 
And he's got a strategy. He's been doing it in Nehemiah since chapter one. Here's what he does. Let's put it on the screen. Derision, chapter two. What is that? That's just teasing. Just teasing you in verbal you know, uh, attacks. Discouragement, chapter four. He's going to try and get you to give up. Danger, end of chapter four. He's going to try and attack you. And then our chapter, division. He's just going to try and separate you. You have to understand that Satan is coming after you. He's trying to destroy your finances, your health, and your family. He's trying to destroy your soul and everything there is a part of you. He's trying to destroy you. Okay? Some of us give Satan far too much credit. We really do. You know, we're having a church picnic and it starts to rain and someone goes, oh, look what Satan did. No. No, he, he doesn't control the rain. You know, some people give Satan far too much credit for anything that goes wrong in their life, right? Some people go the opposite extreme and they almost act like Satan's some mythological fig figure that doesn't exist and no big deal, you know? And we don't give him any respect, so to speak. It's kind of like this old country church years and years and years ago. And Wednesday night prayer meeting, there's a small group, mostly elderly, and they're praying and they're praying and they're praying. Halfway through the prayer meeting, Satan shows up. And they get just freak out. And then they start running all out of the church and going out the exit doors and, and the windows, jumping out the windows. They're all afraid Satan just showed up, except this really old man. He just sits in, his, in the pew and he doesn't move. Satan comes up to him. He says, I am... Lucifer, why do you not fear me? And the old man says, because I've been married to your sister for 45 years. (laughs) Sounds more like a marriage issue, but my point is, is that sometimes that's how we are with Satan. Like it's no big deal. No, I'm not suggesting you fear him. I'm not suggesting you fear him. I am suggesting you be on guard because he is coming after you. Okay, and that's not me trying to create some weird he's coming after you. That's what the Bible says. Okay, let me wrap it up. Last step is set the example. Do what Nehemiah does. I'm just going to read these verses for you on the screen. A couple points, a couple things I would encourage you to do when it comes to solving the problem. Nehemiah says, when I was appointed to be their governor in the land of Judah, neither I nor my brothers ate the food allotted to the governor. I never demanded the food allotted to the governor because the demands were, were heavy on the people. Here's how it works. So he's the, the, the mayor, essentially, of Jerusalem. And, and he has an expense account. So when he has meetings with people, if he wants to have a lunch meeting, he can just take them to Applebee's and expense it. That's what he can do. That makes kind of sense. He's the mayor. He should be able to do that, right? We should give him some money to do that. Nehemiah goes, you know what? I know I have every right to do that. I'm not going to do that. You know what it means to solve the problem? Sometimes you don't just focus on what your spouse should be doing or your kids should be doing. You don't focus on what your coworkers should be doing. You don't focus on what someone else in the church should be doing or someone else at the school should be doing. You focus on what you should be doing. And by example... Sometimes you sacrifice just like Nehemiah did. You give up your own rights and say, this is what I'm going to give up to make this happen. So I'm going to give up. Let me show you another verse. Let's put the next one up there. Verse 16. Instead, I devoted myself to the work of this wall. Now, just back up for a minute. Remember what Nehemiah is. He's the mayor. And here he's saying, you know, every once in a while, I leave City Hall, I put on my hard hat, I go to the wall, I pick up some bricks, I get some cement, and I start building the wall. You see, sometimes fixing what is broken means that you should do what is, quote, beneath you. Do work that is beneath you. I I know you're smarter. Do it anyway. I know you're more gifted. Do it anyway. 
Sometimes rebuilding things in your life, rebuilding things in your family means you do stuff that is beneath you, just like Nehemiah did. Now, in the process of all this, make sure, make sure, make sure you end it like this. Last verse, and I'm going to close in prayer. Verse 15 and 19. Why does he do all this? He says, but out of reverence for God, I did not act like that. Let me ask you a question. Who are you trying to impress? Who are you trying to impress? Your classmates? Your boss? Your pastor? Your friends? Your family? Who are you trying to impress? Can I give you a little secret that will free you beyond what you can ever imagine? At the end of the day, when you're just about ready to go to sleep, ask God, are you pleased with me? Are you pleased? And if God gives you the thumbs up, you're going to sleep really, really good. When you start realizing you don't have to live your life to try and impress everyone else. Now, does it feel good when people acknowledge, hey, you did a good job? Sure. I'm not saying that that's not right, that's wrong. But live for God's approval, not man's approval. Live for his approval. He ends the whole chapter. He says, remember me with favor, oh my God, for all I have done for these people. I don't need to be voted man of the year by Time Magazine, says Nehemiah. At the end of the day, I want, you, I want to know, God, that you are pleased with me. As you're rebuilding your walls, we have one more week left. As you're rebuilding your walls, make sure you prioritize people, not just the project. Make sure you dig down deep and have the courage to admit if something is broken and what needs to be fixed. Have the courage to have those difficult conversations. And finally, be part of the solution. Set the example, okay? Let's close in a word of prayer. We'll have the worship team come up. We'll wrap up our service. Heavenly Father, we want to thank you for the book of Nehemiah. We thank you for what it teaches us about brokenness and about restoration. Father, I pray that... um, These very practical principles we've learned today, there are some of us here that are doing the very best we can to rebuild what is broken, to repair that which has been uh, torn down and burnt down. And we're finding that people that should be encouraging us and supporting us are actually making it more difficult. Father, in spite of that, we're going to move forward. We're going to do the best we can to live our lives in a way that is pleasing to you so that you will be impressed with us, irrespective of what others say. Father, this chapter also incredibly emphasizes the importance of being united. Father, as we enter into a season in our church that is incredibly important and significant, as we begin to play tug-of-war with the enemy who wants to, to derail us and get us off track, Father, as we, as we do this tug of war, I pray that every single one that calls Bay Hills their home would pick up part of the rope and we would all pull together. Father, irrespective of where you take us and our next church home is, Father, we can accomplish ministry. We can make your, the name of your son Jesus great here, irrespective of all of our resources. Father, remind us, remind us that what we need most is the power and the presence of your Holy Spirit. All those other things, they might be helpful. Chairs and microphones and buildings and so on and so forth. But in the end, what we need most is you, Father. We want to lean on you. We want to rely on you, not only for our church, 
but also for our, our individuals and our families. Thank you for what you've taught us. We pray this all in Jesus' name. It's our hope that today's podcast has enriched your life and answered questions you may have had. If you'd like more information about what was said in this podcast or about Bay Hills Community Church, you can reach us on the Internet at www.bayhills.net. Bay Hills, located in El Sobrante, California, is radically committed to reaching the unchurched in the Bay Area and to developing believers into fully devoted followers of Christ. Thanks again for listening.